Good morning. My name is Aaron Lewis. I'm one of the elders here. It's good to uh, see you all on the hill. This is my time, my first time preaching on the hill. So thanks for being here. It's a little warm, but what a great day to be outside. And thank you, Lord, for a little bit of cloud cover, right? Big thank you to John Supika for his series on encouragement. If you uh, didn't have a chance to catch all three of those sermons, you can find them online in the sermon archive portion of the website. So I'd encourage you, no pun intended, to go check those out and uh, and listen out. They were really great. So thank you, John. So we're now going to be turning to a series on Psalms for the next several weeks. You're going to be hearing from a few different folks over that time as we take a look at a handful of selected Psalms. So this series is something that I've personally been looking forward to. By and large, Psalms are some of the most familiar texts in all of the Bible. Yeah, chances are you probably have a few Psalms in mind. Um, when, when you think about it, that they may be special to you for different reasons. Maybe you've gone to the Psalms when your heart has overflowed with gratitude and you were looking for, for better words than you could muster up to thank the Lord for his goodness to you. Or perhaps you've gone to the Psalms in times of difficulty. Uh, maybe you've been dealing recently with sadness or grief at the loss of a loved one. Or maybe you've been dealing with bitterness or even despair. Some of the Psalms contain words and moments of brutal honesty that for some people may even be uncomfortable to say some of those words out loud to the Lord. But the Psalms connect with us in our suffering. The Psalms are even a place where the character and attributes of God are on display. There's theology in the Psalms. There are messianic prophecies that talk about a coming king who's far greater than any human king could ever be, pointing to Jesus. So the Psalms make up an incredibly diverse book. And I'm really glad that we get to spend the next few weeks together this summer looking at the Psalms. And how could we start a summer series on the Psalms without beginning where the book begins in Psalm 1? It's been a different kind of text to try to prepare for. There's not much historical context to give. There are not specific, important, central characters who are named uh, that we, we could talk about. But that's also what makes the Psalms so accessible to God's people, wherever we are in the timeline of God's redemptive history. The Holy Spirit uses the Psalms to speak directly to our hearts. Psalm 1 is five sentences long, and the plan is for me to talk about those five sentences for the next 30 minutes. So let's pray and ask the Lord to make this time fruitful. Father, we are grateful to be gathered outside. We're grateful to be together. We're grateful to be under your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this time to produce fruit in us. So meet us where we are at, speak to us, and help us to hear and respond. In Christ's name, amen. One of the benefits that I get from preaching very occasionally is that I get to spend a lot of lead-up time focused on whatever texts that I'm going to be teaching on. So usually I start a few months out reading, rereading the text, working through questions that come up, things that I don't understand about the text, looking at other places in scripture where this text might be referenced, 
I'll also look to a few trusted others to see how they've handled the text. So I'm gonna do some gymnastics here before this blows away. So one of the places that I turned to for this text was John Piper. Over his three or four decades of preaching ministry, he taught on this text three times, at least three that were recorded. And one of the really, it was really interesting to hear someone teach on the same text at three different points on a long timeline of preaching ministry. And what stood out to me the most from the times that he handled this text was a question that he asked at the start of a Sunday evening sermon that he preached on Psalm 1 all the way back in the 1980s. And it was a question I had never considered when reading Psalm 1, or any psalm for that matter. And that question, excuse me, I'll get to what that question was in just a minute. But good questions are like that, aren't they? When you get a well-timed, well-placed, well-intentioned question, it can really cause us to stop and think about what we're doing. These questions might be questions like, is this what the Lord wants me to be doing? What is the purpose or value of this activity? Are my thoughts and words and actions justifiable before the Lord? My wife Jenna recently had an experience like that when a well-placed question just stopped her in her tracks. It was a little while ago in wintertime. It had just snowed and our kids were having so much fun getting to go outside in the snow and play. We have three kids, ages eight, six, and four. And perhaps you may have had the shared experience of trying to get three kids ready to go outside in the snow and play, right? There's a lot of pieces that have to fall into place before you're ready to go outside. So this is about the fourth time that the kids were headed outside that day. And Jenna was helping our four-year-old get all of her snow gear on again. And by the fourth time through, we were getting a little impatient with how long it was taking to get dressed. Everyone's patience was waning a bit. And that's when the well-placed, well-timed, well-intentioned question came out of the mouth of our four-year-old that really did cause us to stop and consider our intentions. Brooklyn was sitting on Jenna's lap, and she turned and looked at Jenna and said, do you even like kids? Because, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> it's not done yet. <laughs> do you even like kids? Because it doesn't seem like you do. Well, that question caught us a little bit off guard, but I'm really thankful for my godly wife. She spoke the truth in love and without missing a beat responded, oh yes, Brooklyn, I love kids, but I do not like whining. Good answer. It's a great answer and a true answer. A very direct question from our four-year-old and it gave Jenna and I the chance to affirm that yes, we do value doing our best to be godly parents to our children. So, back to the question that John Piper asked. He was also kicking off a Summer in the Psalms series and he decided that with each psalm they looked at, he would ask this question. What is the psalmist arguing? And at first I thought, okay, this sounds a little bit like clickbait. The Psalms aren't argumentative. But the more that I thought about it, the more I came to appreciate the point that he was making. What happens when two people get into an argument? I'd say two things. The first is that the tone shifts in the conversation from being an emotionally flat, just exchange of information. And instead that conversation becomes impassioned, right? The volume of your voice 
might go up. Your tone might change a bit. You might get more demonstrative with the way that you're talking with your hands like I'm doing now. The second thing that happens is that the goal of the conversation changes from being merely an exchange of information to actually trying to persuade the other person to your point of view. So the conversation goes from ping pong, right, just following back and forth, to more like tug of war, where you're actually trying to pull the other person over to your perspective. So one question that we're going to ask of the psalmist, of who wrote Psalm 1 today, is what are you arguing? What are you passionately trying to convince us of today? Asked another way, you might say, why did you write Psalm 1? And although we can't ask the author directly, we can draw conclusions directly from his text. So let's read Psalm 1. should be in your bulletins. And please follow along with me as I read. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what is the psalmist arguing in Psalm 1? Why did he write it? I believe that the psalmist is looking around at his own life, his people, his culture, which is, which is the nation of Israel at this point, and he has realized that there is a problem at the heart of every human being, including you and I today. And that problem is that we struggle to submit to the law and instruction of God. We all struggle, don't we? It's worth pointing out here that in the Hebrew word in, this trans, in your translation can be translated as law and also instruction. So you're going to hear me use those two words interchangeably from here on out just so that we don't hear too much legalism when I say the word law. But here's a well-placed, well-intentioned question for you that I'm going to ask purposefully as a leading question. I'm going to ask it now, so I hope that you have this thought on your mind for the rest of this morning. And here's the question. Where are you struggling most to honor God's instruction to you right now? Don't sugarcoat it. The Lord already knows the answer in even more depth and painful detail than we probably care to admit. Where are you struggling most to honor God's instruction to you right now? Well, let us be thankful that we have Psalm 1 to encourage us this morning. That's why the psalmist wrote Psalm 1. That is his argument. That is what he believes that he needs to persuade the world of. According to Psalm 1, there are two types of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who submit to the law and those who don't. The psalmist passionately wants you and me to rightly value the wisdom and blessing that comes from following God's instruction. He wants us to be counted amongst the righteous people of God. So how do we do that? 
Because God blesses the way of the righteous, the psalmist argues that you and I must honor the law of the Lord. And he does a masterful job of making his case in these five sentences. And that's what we're going to look at in the rest of our time. The psalmist tells us in this text that if we want to be considered blessed in the sight of God, that we must honor his law. And we do that by responding in three ways. Because, because God blesses the way of the righteous, we must not be toothless, we must not be rootless, and we must not be fruitless. So we see in verse 1 and 2 that if we're to honor the law and instruction of the Lord, we must not be toothless, meaning we must have some backbone. We're going to have to stand our ground. As Taylor helps us to see in his series on Jude, there are times when we are going to have to contend for the faith. The so-called wisdom of the world will try to turn you and I away from the instruction of the Lord. In 2021, you can get on any social media platform, make basically any sort of morally relative claim about yourself and your own personal beliefs, and the world will celebrate you being you. Throw in a hashtag blessed and you might even get some church folk liking your post. This is just what the psalmist is seeing when he looks at the world around him. And he says, no, no, that's not what it means to be blessed. Do you know who the truly blessed person of God is? And he gives a surprising answer. He says, it's the person who delights in the law of the Lord. It's the person who treasures the instruction that the Lord gives, even when it might be difficult to understand or to submit to with a willing and joyful heart, even when it goes against what our own flesh might desire. If you look at verse 1, right away we see the juxtaposition between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous person does not take counsel from the wicked, the sinners, or the scoffers. That's not to say that the righteous person shouldn't have any interaction with them, but it's not where the righteous person puts his or her focus. The focus is on living a life that honors the instruction of the Lord and leaning on brothers and sisters in the church who can help him or her to live a life to that end. Remember, the blessed man who honors the law, he's not toothless, he has a backbone, his faith. So how does this blessed brother or sister develop this strong backbone of faith? Verse 2 tells us, he meditates on the law and instruction of the Lord day and night. What does it mean to meditate on the law day and night? What if we need to sleep? Well, headphones on, fall asleep to Morgan Freeman reading the Bible to you as you sleep, right? That could work, but that's not what, that, that's not what this means here. So let's, let's break this apart into two bite-sized pieces. What does it mean to meditate on the law day and night as Psalm 1 suggests? Here's what it means. First, what's it mean to meditate? It means to dwell on, to deeply consider, to chew on it. Okay, so how do I meditate on God's law and instruction? Well, that comes from God's word. Hide it in your heart. Read God's word daily in an ongoing rhythm or habit. Not out of compulsion, but because in the Bible are the words of life. Jesus is the word. Read it. Keep reading it. Talk about it. Ask questions and seek answers to the parts that you may not understand. Come hear it preached. Sing songs. Uh, sing the words of the law and song to help you commit it to memory. 
Memorize it. Process it out loud in your small group. Listen to podcasts, sermons on it. Read good Bible-saturated books. You get the idea. Okay, so that was part one. Meditate on the law. How do I do this day and night? What does that mean? It means, what do you think of when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep? Your mind's racing. You're tossing and turning. You're trying to get back to sleep. What do you dwell on? What are the words that you're telling yourself in your head besides go back to sleep? Meditating on God's law day and night means that we are considering how God is at work in every moment of every day, right? It could be during a busy work day. It can be when you're driving in the car and it's silent. It can be when you're trying to feed the kids lunch. It can be when you're caring for a sick family member or a parent who is aging. It means we are considering how God is at work in every moment of every day, even in the mundane, especially in the mundane. So if we are to honor the law of God, we cannot be toothless. We also must not be rootless. This is the most incredible section of the psalm, in my opinion. The psalmist continues his juxtaposition. Remember, there are only two types of people in the world. And the psalmist is arguing with your flesh and my flesh because we struggle to rightly submit to the law of God. So he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to try to persuade us. He put pen to paper and this is the image that the Lord gave to him to share with us this morning. The righteous man we've been talking about, that godly man or woman is like a tree. He didn't, probably didn't see that in any Hallmark cards of Valentine's Day this year. But again, this is not the wisdom of the world. This is not just any tree. This is a tree that is flourishing. A tree of trees. It's a tree that's been planted by a stream of water that's feeding it, helping it to grow so it can support its branches and leaves and fruit. It's able to store up water and nutrients that it will need in times of drought so that it can persevere. What a beautiful image of strength, stability, and health. Be amazed by it. Remember, the psalmist is arguing with you, and this is his main point. You and I should desire to be a healthy, strong, rooted tree. So let's camp on this image for a bit. Think about what a big, healthy tree has to offer the world around it. For one thing, trees help us breathe. They take carbon dioxide from the air, plus sunlight and water, and they make their own food for growth. And as a byproduct of that process, they produce breathable oxygen for us. Very practical and a fun science lesson. So in this image in the psalm, special attention is given to the roots of this tree. Here's a question. What does a rooted Christian look like? He looks like someone whose identity is in Christ. It looks like someone whose beauty is her lasting godly character. Not the vain pursuits of images of physical beauty that cannot possibly be upheld over time. It looks like the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to help a person to die of old habits to sin and to be made new. It looks like quiet and unshakable faith when faced with a grim diagnosis or dire circumstances. In addition to the focus on the roots and growth, the psalmist goes on in verse 3 to mention that the tree, the righteous person, yields its fruit in season. How does a tree yield fruit? 
Well, this tree was planted by a stream, so it has plenty of water. But water isn't the only thing that makes fruit. Trees don't just grow water balloons where the, the water from the roots is piped up simply to be stored in the fruit. No, there's some kind of transformation that's happening there. The tree is taking sunlight, water, and our morning coffee breath and turning it into crisp, juicy apples and with a byproduct of breathable oxygen for us to breathe. Something incredible is happening there. So let's take that same equation, that mysterious equation, and apply it to a righteous person bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The rooted follower of Christ endures a harsh word from a child and responds with gentleness. The rooted follower of Christ goes the extra mile to serve a gruff neighbor with joy instead of grumbling. The rooted follower of Christ forgives a friend who spoke critically and still hasn't apologized or acknowledged any wrongdoing. A rooted follower of Christ receives difficult news with open palms of faith. I could keep going, but I'm not nearly as poetic as the psalmist. But the point is this, that in the same way that a tree gives life to the world around it, the person who honors and values the instruction of the Lord brings light in life to everyone that he or she interacts with. The psalmist continues his either-or argument in verse 4. After this beautiful image of a rooted tree wheat that bears fruit and withstands difficult times, we see now the total opposite of that. The wicked are like chaff that the wind just blows away. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm so I admit to you, I had to watch a few YouTube videos to get a good grasp of exactly what chaff is. And more importantly for this text, how it is removed. But for those who might also need a reminder, no judgment, chaff is the dry, scaly, protective casing that surrounds the seeds of grain. So when something like wheat's harvested in the fall, when it's nice and dry, there's a multi-step process to get you from the stalk of wheat to the useful seed. So in, in ideal conditions, that casing is very easily removed, oftentimes by simply making use of the breeze, like the one that we're getting today, or even just a puff of your own breath. That is how easily the chaff is removed. And since it's undigestible to humans, it's often simply just thrown away, or burned, or plowed back into the ground, or perhaps given to livestock who can digest it. But here's the point. Are you struck by the comparison we just talked about this incredibly majestic, beautiful, rooted tree, and that is compared to the epitome of something that is rootless. We went from this life-giving tree to a useless byproduct that's carried away by the wind. I just removed some evergreen bushes from the side of our house that had been planted there for about 10 years. It's probably about, the bush was about five feet wide and just as tall. And it was so big and wide that I knew that to get to the root so that I could dig it out, I'd have to get a chainsaw to remove all the branches because where it was located, I, I couldn't get there with a truck and a chain. So with a chainsaw, I started lopping off all the branches so I could finally see the very core of this bush. I started putting those branches in my trash can, which filled up very quickly. So then I, I began removing them all and burning them in the fire. And that's when I was finally able, once I had removed all those branches, to see the roots, the base of this beast. And that's when Psalm 1 came to life. The roots on this bush were unbelievable. Now, I'm not surprised given how large it had become, but this bush was rooted and flourishing. 
The specific bush did not need to be planted by a stream of water for it to grow and do well, but it had previously sheltered young animals in its protective inner branches, and we saw evidence of nests that used to be there that had formerly housed baby birds. We regularly saw chipmunks and rabbits diving under there for cover. This tree was yielding its fruit as an evergreen bush to its full God-given potential. But as I said, I was burning the branches in our fire pit, branch after branch of these sappy, green, sticky, evergreen branches being dumped on the smoldering embers. You know, the needles would immediately burn up, and then the sap would start to sizzle, sending off plumes of white smoke, right? an alarming amount of smoke that was filling the field behind us. And when it was all said and done, it took me about two hours to burn up all the remnants of the bush. And what was left? About several inches of ash in the bottom of our fire pit. It was very fine ash. And the gentle breeze, about like it is, like it is today, was kicking up some of that ash and making these mini tornadoes and when the evening light was coming through our backyard, you could just see the fine particles of dust just floating in the air, weightless. And that's when the Lord was like, Aaron, this is chaff. The Lord gave me the chance to physically see and feel the either-or argument that Psalm 1 is making. Either we are like this evergreen bush that's deeply with its deeply seeded roots and protective branches giving life to the environment around it, or we're like the weightless ash that's left after the bush is burned up and reduced to dust. There is no in-between. None of us want to be like chaff because there's nothing desirable about it. And the psalmist compares those who don't value or submit to the law of God as just that. We avoid such a life by not being toothless or rootless. So how else do we honor God's law as blessed sons and daughters? We do it by not being fruitless. After this beautiful image of the tree, where the life-giving elements of this amazing tree are on full display, we get to the psalmist's closing argument in verses 5 and 6. We see the word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 5. And whenever we see the word, therefore, you should always ask, what is the therefore there for? In this case, the psalmist is writing his conclusion. Our antenna should be up. The psalmist, inspired by God, looked around at his neighbors, looked around at the world around him, his community, and he noticed that there was a problem. There were people who did not know and understand what it meant to live a blessed life. They were toothless, rootless, and fruitless. And what is the end result of a life lived that way. The psalmist does not mix any words here. He says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, while it's possible that the judgment the psalmist is talking about could be any type of judgment here on this earth, the context here leads us to believe that the judgment that he's referring to is the final judgment. It is the separation of the sheep, God's people, from the goats those who've turned their backs on God. This is solidified in the second part of verse 5, since it is this judgment, the final judgment, that will allow some to enter into heaven and join the congregation of the righteous. So let's pause and make sure we know who the righteous people are that this psalm is talking about. Here's a great question. 
how do we know if we are counted among the righteous or the unrighteous? What a great question to consider. One of the New Testament tells us that we should work out with fear and trembling. Verse 5 portrays an image of a person standing before God, the judge. Who is righteous before a holy God? And the answer is no one. No one is righteous before a holy God apart from Christ. None of us can stand before our, our holy God in our own merit. But this is the beauty of the gospel. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, that God is both faithful, he will do it, and just. He is a God of justice who demands payment. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So friends, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, in your mind, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be counted among the righteous of God. If the Holy Spirit dwells within you and the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life, then God counts you among the righteous people here. And it's not because you or, you or I are necessarily more obedient than others. It's because of Jesus. And the good news is that anyone can get in on this through the cross of Christ. It is not of our own doing. And you can join the congregation of the righteous by grace through faith in Christ alone. So the psalmist is giving us a theology lesson. There are two types of people and two types only. There are the wicked people and there are righteous people. And the righteous people are not people who never sin. They are people who repent of their sin. They're the people who beat their chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. They are people who trust only in Christ for the hope of salvation, washed of their sin by the blood of the Lamb. Their sins are given to Jesus, and in return, he gives you and I his righteousness. That is how we are counted among the righteous of God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Well, the psalmist has written you a note. It is five sentences long, and he's been trying to persuade you of something. Remember how you answered the question near the beginning of our time together. Where are you struggling most right now? to honor God's law and instruction to you. Think about what came to your mind when asked that question. And now let's consider our response to the psalmist's argument in Psalm 1. I'm going to do my best to ask you a few well-timed, well-placed, well-intentioned questions that follow the, the either-or argument of this psalm. I encourage you to write these down. Think about them. Talk about them. Question 1. Whose counsel are you taking? Whose counsel are you taking? Who is in your ear giving you advice on how to respond to the thousands of daily thoughts and words and interactions with others that we have? Is it the word of God? Is it godly brothers and sisters? Or is it someone else? If you wrote down all the voices that you choose to listen to in a week, what would it say about to whom we are listening? If you have an iPhone, you might get a weekly report that tells you how many hours and minutes you spend looking at the screen of your phone. Now imagine that another report was sent to you that tracked all the minutes that you spent listening to podcasts, what songs you listened to, what TV shows or movies you watched, who you listened to on the radio, all the people you had conversations with, all the articles you read, all the social media posts that you took in, 
All of those things put together make up the counsel we are receiving. Now, imagine that report is handed to a total stranger. What would that person conclude about the type of counsel you are receiving? Question two, why do you not delight in the law of the Lord? Since we all struggle to submit to God's instructions, there remains in us at least part of our heart that's still being sanctified and purified that does not, at its root, truly delight in God's law. For some of us here today, the answer to that question, if we're honest, is actually pretty simple. It may be because we don't agree with it. There may be parts of God's law or God's word that we wish were not there. There may be parts that we think are old and obsolete or restrictive in some ways. To those of you who may resonate with that line of thinking, I would point you back to the either-or nature of this text and many others. Either you will stand in the congregation of the righteous or you will not. There is no middle ground. We know who the judge is and he has given us his law. If you, one of his finite creations, believe you have found a better, wiser way to live in this world other than the way that the creator has given to us in his word, then I fear you may have been deceived to some degree by the counsel of this world. I would plead with you to reconsider the argument of Psalm 1. Question 3. What will you be in the coming drought? Not what will you do, but what will you be? We saw in the text that the drought hit everybody, the tree and the chaff. That's no shock to us, right? Jesus tells us the same thing. In this world, you will have trouble. It's not a matter of if, but when. And in times of drought, meaning times of difficulty, either in external circumstances or perhaps internal spiritual dryness, that will happen from time to time. The question is, what will you be in the coming drought? A rooted tree or the rootless chaff? And finally, question four. Which way are you on? Not which way are you going or which way are you headed toward. The question is not which way are you trending. The question is which way are you on? Jesus could come back today. Your life could be demanded from you today. And I do not know when that moment will be for you and for me, but I want you to hear the truth of God's word clearly. You are either on the path of the righteous right now, or you are on the path to destruction right now. So while we should rightly feel the urgency and importance of our current spiritual condition, take heart in this truth, friends. Be persuaded by this argument. Who planted the tree in Psalm 1? Who put it by the stream? Who made it grow tall and strong with roots set down in the ground, producing abundant fruit and giving life to the world around it? It was God himself. And the God who commands life-giving trees to grow is the same God who renews hearts to delight in the law and instruction of God through the work of his Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask him to do that in our hearts today. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we do not rightly value your law and therefore we do not always submit to it with joy and gladness. We need your spirit 
to help us. Help us to desire the things that are of you. Help us to desire to be rooted trees. Spirit, we cannot do these things in our own strength. We are reliant upon you to help us. So we ask you to do that. For your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.